The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place. I say that five times a week, and I mean it because it's always true. Let's see what the buzz on the street is. Well, street is actually a part of the buzz. I'm going to be quoting a gentleman named Stuart Brand, an American writer, best known as editor of the Whole Earth Catalog. He founded a number of organizations, including The Well, the Global Business Network, and the Long Now Foundation. He's the author of The Whole Earth Discipline in an eco-pragmatist manifesto. I think I got all the syllables right. Here's the quote I selected from Mr. Stuart Brand. Once a new technology rolls over you, if you're not part of the steamroller, you're part of the road. C Street, yes, the buzz on the street. Okay, what are we talking about today? Well, you know that we're the future of manufacturing with Game Changers. So we're talking today about the IMNC sector, that's industrial machinery and components sector. Well, they're seeing new opportunities and new challenges for from the steady stream, steady flow, steady road of breakthrough innovations. You know, we're talking about 3D printing. Come on, it's been around through for years. It's just starting to really get noticed and take popularity. We're talking about machine learning. We're talking about a family called the Digital Twins. We'll find out more about that. Blockchains and so much more. Management in IMC in the manufacturing industry is sitting back and saying, that sounds great, that sounds fun, that sounds exciting, but show me the value. So the bottom line here is IMNC companies need to take advantage of these breakthroughs to accomplish what? They want to grow revenue, they want to lower their costs, and they want to optimize their assets. But the question is, how? I think I hear a dog barking. I guess we have a puppy on the sh- we have a pup puppy on the sh- Puppy on the show today. We'll be hearing from our panelists in just a minute. So the question is, how? Okay, our topic is manufacturing innovations, the value of breakthroughs, question mark. I'll tell you who our panelists are, and the the female voice you just heard belongs to Debbie Krupitzer. (laughs) She is Digital Manufacturing Industrial Internet Lead at Capgemini. We're very happy to have her. Joining her on the panel are Steve Shepley, S-H-E-P-L-E-Y, Principal in the Manufacturing Industry Practice at Deloitte. And a shout out to all of our good friends at Deloitte, including Carla Neal. So happy to have another thought leader, a new one from Deloitte on the panel. And rounding out the panel is another, they're all newcomers actually. Sashin Bapat, B-A-P-A-T. You want to look them up. Senior Advisor 
in SAP's Value Advisory for Discrete Manufacturing. And I have to do a shout-out to a lady who's on the phone listening actively. It's Lori Yeager from SAP who helped so diligently to get this panel all together and with this topic. So, Lori, thank you, and I know you're listening, and I'm looking forward to your tweets. She's already tweeting. Okay, so let's start off the show by introducing Debbie formally. And Debbie has sent me a quote from Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, the 2006 (laughs) film. And Ricky Bobby was played by Will Ferrell, who helped to write and direct the show. Uh, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, is a 2006 American sports comedy film directed by Adam McKay and starring Will Ferrell, which written by both McKay and Ferrell. Number one, NASCAR driver Ricky Bobby stays atop the heap thanks to a pact with his best friend and teammate Cal Norton Jr. But when a French Formula One driver, ooh la la, makes his way up the ladder or down the pike, Ricky Bobby's talent and devotion are put to the test. The movie, the, the list of stars is amazing. John C. Riley, Sasha Baron Cohen, Gary Cole, Michael Clark Duncan, with all kinds of appearances by NASCAR drivers and broadcasters, blah, blah, blah. So here's the quote Debbie has picked, and she's going to tell us how it relates to our topic. Quote, this sticker is dangerous and inconvenient, but I do love Fig Newtons. All I can say is, what? Debbie Krupitzer, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm very well. Thank you. I should introduce my dog, too. That was Please do. the dog, who's sorry. So he, he wanted to be on the radio. So obviously he wanted to be famous. So uh, sorry about that. But yeah, I, I love the movie. So uh, Talladega Nights is one of my favorite movies on too many levels. I'm from South Carolina originally, so I think I have a little bit of NASCAR redneck in me. Um, but I think the quote for me is, is, is sort of around innovation, right? So sometimes innovation is dangerous. Sometimes we find it inconvenient. Technology scares us. The innovations scare us, especially for businesses. But you really do love the impact and the result that it gives. So I think the quote I chose is sort of, you know, obviously this quote is around a Fig Newton sticker being on his windshield and he can't drive. Uh, But he's really sort of working around it, which is, you know, this sticker is inconvenient. It's dangerous. But gosh, I love Big Newtons. And I think I feel that same way sometimes around innovation and technology, that it can be inconvenient. It can be a pain. It breaks the status quo. But gosh, we love it. It does so much for businesses, and it's so much fun to work with. Very, very interesting. Um, fun to work with. That's an interesting topic. When we talk about manufacturing, Debbie, we typically don't think about fun. Other than we've heard in recent years, a lot of people on the manufacturer manufacturing factory floors are using cool technology like iPads, yep. and they're using all kinds of connected devices that make it more fun to attract younger people, more energy yep. to the manufacturer. I'm right. So when you think of fun, are they eating t- Fig Newtons in manufacturing today? Do you know? <laughs> well, in some they may. I, obviously, usually the factory floors are pretty clean. But what you're finding, you've got it exactly right. I mean, the... The, you know, we've got a, a group of people that are aging out, they're, they're leaving the factory floor, and we've got new people coming in, and they want to play with technology. You know, they grew up on games, and they grew up with the iPads, and they don't want to see paper-based checklists, right, of, you know, okay, this run is coming through, how is it impacting? They really are interested. Now, they may not understand the underpinnings of the technology, but they know they want something that's fun and cool to work with, and it makes their job a little bit more exciting, too. So for us, it's not, you know, it's the machine's machine. It's the machines talking to each other and telling them when something's going wrong. It's IoT sensors and, and gloves that are around safety so it can lock someone out, even if they are doing something wrong that they didn't realize that the sensor is uh, recognizing that a problem has happened. Um, so, you know, a lot of people think manufacturing isn't, 
isn't that exciting? And for us, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it really is the rebirth of, I think, uh, a manufacturing with, you know, the whole, let's make America great again. Uh, you can, you can say that, you know, you politically, you're not aligned or you're aligned, but what we say is let's make American manufacturing great again. Um, and part of that is bringing, um, technology and new thought leadership into our plant floors of how to, you know, make more money. That's the whole point. You know, how do you, how do you get your production up? How do you save money um, for downtime? It's all around the, on the money and the cost, which is to us very exciting. Thank you very much, Debbie. Great introduction, and I'm I'm all, all of a sudden very hungry for Fig Newtons. I don't know what you've done to me, but it's just going <laughs> to change everything here. Thank you, Debbie. It's a pleasure. We, we love your energy. And now let's introduce Steve Shepley, Principal in the Manufacturing Industry Practice at Deloitte, and he is bringing us a quote that is commonly attributed to Charles Darwin, but those of you who listen regularly to Game Changers know that I'm a big fan of a website called Quote Investigator, and they say, no, 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 it wasn't attributed to Charles Charles Darwin, it came from Professor Leon C. Meganson, 1921 to 2010, and this is the earliest evidence they found. He was basically paraphrasing Darwin, and this was from a speech he gave in 1963. He's a Louisiana State University business professor, and he was speaking at the Southwestern Social Science Association Convention. That's a mouthful. We'll just leave it there. Here's the quote. You all know it, and let's see how Steve can relate it. Here's the quote. It is not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most adaptable to change. I still love the quote, no matter who said it. Steve Shapley, welcome to Game Changers. How are you today, Steve? I'm doing fantastic, Bonnie. Uh, How are you today? I'm fine. Very happy to have you. And again, shout out to all our good friends at Deloitte. You know, there's about 25 of your colleagues a year who come on Game Changers. Did you know that, Steve? I didn't realize the number was quite that high, but I'm, I'm certainly happy to be part of the family joining the Game Changer show. Absolutely. We certainly are. So talk to me about this. Forget about Darwin and Megan, so we really don't care. How does this relate to our topic? We're talking innovation. We're talking serious stuff. Manufacturing IM and C. We're talking cool stuff like innovations and digital twins and machine learning and AI. And how does the adaptable to change fit into this, Steve? Yeah, and, and it actually fits in a couple different ways, Bonnie. And, and first, I, I almost have to distill down this quote to, to make it a, a bit more clear. But if you kind of boil it for a minute, what the quote really says is adapt or die. And if you look at the uh. IMC segment, they, they at times will almost pride themselves uh, at being maybe a slow follower, right? Not being the one to be on the forefront of experimentation and innovation. And, you know, they tend to be a little bit you know, slow and resistant to change. And I think this revolution that's in front of us with, you know, the, the new devices, the new technology, and kind of getting to this pivot point down these exponential cost curves that have make them, you know, now actually real marketable technologies has mm-hmm. put a different decision on the table. The decision, the decision isn't should I watch and wait and see or potentially be a follower. It's really should I be disrupted or should I disrupt? Right, you don't really have this choice anymore. So, to me, this quote is really driving to the point that you know, if you don't get on the train and start adapting these technologies, non-classical competitors may come eat your lunch. 
Uh, some of the companies that you compete with today might change their business models and do something completely different and cut you out of your markets. And again, we've seen this time and time again in, in other sectors where digital native companies have stepped in and disrupted entire industries, right? We all know the Netflix example, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. That's going to happen in the IM, IM and C segment just as it has in those segments if these companies don't adapt. But adapt is, is, is also important, not just in the choice that they have to make, it's also in, in talent, right? I think people need to realize that, you know, of course, everyone wants to go hire the new young talent that love all these technologies, but there is an existing workforce there. And I think that workforce needs to realize that, it, you know, they need to adapt also to these changes and start absorbing and letting these new technologies into the way they do their business, because that's ultimately how they're going to win and how they're actually going to maintain their competitive position. Thank you very much. Great insights. And and I'm very intrigued, Steve, that you brought in the idea of non-traditional competitors. We're focusing basically on new technologies, innovations, the cool stuff. And, and right. yet the companies that are bringing this cool stuff to market may say, wait a minute. Well, we could be in the manufacturing industry, too. We can take an end run. Look what happened. Well, I'm going to quote in in our next panelist, I'm going to quote a a very telling statement, and and it will bring to light what I'm trying to say. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Great insights, and I know we have a lot more to hear from you. And third up on our panelist, Sashin Bapat, Senior Advisor in SAP's Value Advisory for Discrete Manufacturing. And here's a quote. Sashin has picked a quote from a gentleman who used to work for Deloitte. And I believe Steve Shepley knows this guy well. His name is Marcus Shingles, S-H-I-N-G-L-E-S. He is now the CEO of the XPRIZE Foundation. Anybody will look it up, the letter X and the word prize right after it, X-P-R-I-Z-E. It's a nonprofit founded by its executive chairman, another very well-known gentleman, Dr. Peter Diamandis. XPRIZE is the leading expert in designing and implementing innovative models that utilize gamification, another fun thing to think about crowdsourcing, incentive competitions, and exponential technologies to solve the world's grandest social challenges. And Marcus Shingles was indeed a partner at Deloitte Consulting and leader of Deloitte Consulting's Innovation Group. Very interesting. Here's the quote, and uh, Steve, this will bring it home, and I'm going to let Sashin tell us how he picked this. The quote, it's a great one. Uber yourself before you get kodak So we've got the name of two giants of industry. They're Uber, Newcomer, Disruptive, OMG, turning everything inside out. They're in trouble, but they're still at the top of the heap. And Kodak... Wow, wow, wow. So I don't usually do musical signals on musical sidebars. So, Sheen, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? Thank you, Bonnie. Doing great. Thank you. And delighted to be on the show. We are, too. So talk to me. How'd you pick the quote? I picked the quote, I think, uh, pretty much along the lines uh, of what we've heard so far, which is either disrupt or get disrupted. You're seeing complete newcomers coming into marketplaces that are so familiar to us that we never think of can be changed, and all of a sudden we have a completely new model, and we can't even remember the old model. Not too long ago, Mm -hmm. I was in York, Pennsylvania, I think one of the fewer uh, cities that does not allow Uber, and took a traditional cab ride again. And that reminded me what a taxi drive used to be like several years ago. Uh, So complete newcomers can create a new category or take take an old category and redefine it, just like Uber did, and... Well-established old companies can literally vanish. Uh, there is a stat, 
uh, that says there is 40% of the five, Fortune 500 companies won't be there in 10 years. Wow. So that tells you how intense this pressure is on organizations to innovate. Absolutely. And, and you know, Sashin, our, our focus is on innovation, as, as Steve Shepley so aptly said. So much is happening in terms of newcomers into industries where, look look at Uber. Who thought? Who knew? Who knew that customers would want what they were offering? I, I have friends who bought taxi medallions in New York City years ago. Mm-hmm. This was their legacy for their families, for their children, for their grandchildren. The value of a taxi medallion went from about, oh, conservatively, two. $2.5 million a couple of years ago, now they can't even find drivers for them. They're worthless. They're maybe 500000 or less. As I speak, they're tumbling. They not only disrupted an industry, they disrupted people's lives. They disrupted fortunes, if you will. And so just amazing. And I love the idea of Kodak. I still have a Kodak digital camera here, and I still love it. I haven't used it in a while, but still my favorite. So there were vestiges of legacies of big companies. You're absolutely right. So we're talking at so many different levels here of realizing the value of this disruption. Sashin, thank you. And I know you had sent me originally a very serious, dry quote. And then you said, wait a minute, I have a better quote. We love the quote from Marcus Shingles. And let me just circle back to Steve Shepley for a second. What was it like working with Marcus? He sounds like he's really a a cool and interesting guy right on the, the tipping edge of innovation. Steve? Yeah, and working with Marcus was actually... Very, very interesting. He's one of those individuals that when you come in and approach a problem, he has a totally different angle that he comes at to, to, to think of the answer, right? And, you know, you know, think of what consultants do every day, right? We get engaged to come in and, you know, solve a very specific problem for, for a client. Marcus's idea for projects is to actually get a bunch of smart people in a room and design a business model that will disrupt our clients and actually walk into that client and actually present that idea. So it's just a, a whole different thinking and approach to, to solving problems or thinking about what the real issue is. And, and second is the ability to kind of see 5, 10, 15 years and project some of these technologies is, is really interesting. You know, things that he, he proposed around, you know, what, what will the future of the garbage industry look like when, you know, we've got nanobots that, that simply eat and convert garbage real time at your house. I mean, really interesting, provocative thoughts that, that really paint a picture, a different picture of what the world is going to be like uh, in the future. So very fun individual to work with. Good. I had a feeling he was. The quote is really cool. I'm so glad that Sashin said it. And uh, I, I think we have a cool panel here, too. A lot of good energy. I'm going to circle around the table back to Ms. Debbie Krupitzer at Capgemini. And, Debbie, we have to do a shout-out to your colleagues as well. We've had many Capgemini people on our shows over the years. And we hope you will spread the word about Game Changers Radio and let them know that the water is warm here and they're welcome to come in the pool. We'd love yeah. to have them. So they can. you can even send me some ideas for shows and we'll put things together. I would love that. So, Debbie, now it's time to get up close and personal. We want to know where you are right now, not the Google map coordinates to the roof of your house. We don't need to get that close, but we'd love to know where you're calling from. And maybe more important, this is the part of the show called What's in Your Cup Today? If you're drinking something really fun and interesting, tell us. Otherwise, what would you rather be drinking? Debbie Krupitzer, go ahead. 
So I am calling you out of San Francisco. So I live uh, in Redwood Shores, right outside San Francisco on the peninsula. Um, so in my cup is uh, ginger beer. So I am obsessed with ginger beer lately. Now, don't think that I'm drinking alcohol this early in the morning. I'm really not. No. Uh, ginger beer <laughs> ginger beer has uh, been around since like the 1700s. So it started as an alcoholic drink. Um, but it's fermented ginger with sugar, um, but now they've taken the alcohol out. So it's just a really spicy, delicious drink. It's better than ginger ale because ginger ale is sort of a sugar-flavored ginger. This is actually fermented with ginger. It's got a, quite a kick. It's um, the basis of a Moscow mule and a dark and stormy. So if you want to put a little bit of a kick in there with some alcohol, you can. But um, I'm obsessed with it. I drink it every day. It's supposed to be really good for you. I find it really spicy, invigorating. So um, no caffeine, which is great. So I, it's, a, it's a delicious drink, and everybody should try it. It's a non-caffeine kick. By the way, Moscow Mule, anybody want to know, is a cocktail made with vodka, spicy ginger beer, and lime juice garnished with a slice or a wedge of lime. It's a type of buck, sometimes known as vodka buck, and you serve it. You know what kind of a mug you're supposed to serve it in, Debbie? Copper cup. Yes, a copper cup. That's right. Oh, you are a good lady. You are really good. We're having an education (laughs) here. Thank you, Debbie. Drink up. Glad there's no caffeine. You don't need it, and I'll tell you a secret about me in a few minutes. (laughs) Steve Shepley. (laughs) Steve Shepley. I'm forbidden to go near it. Steve Shepley, where are you and what are you drinking or what would you love to be drinking instead? Well, I am, I am calling this morning from uh, Fort Worth, Texas. So a little bit of distance from my home in Los Angeles, but certainly somewhere I, I enjoy to spend time. Uh, in, in my cup is actually something uh, probably a bit more plain Jane versus, versus what Debbie had in her cup. But and of course, because I'm a consultant, the, the short answer is it depends. Um, but certainly when I am at home, the, the favorite thing that I like to put in my cup is, is actually ice cold skim milk. Um, but for me, it's not really about the beverage. Um, I, I really enjoy that because um, I've got two young boys. And, and for anyone that, that has boys, uh, they don't they don't slow down much. Uh, they're pretty much in motion 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I, but I've certainly found that if I uh, sit down and we each get a cup of cold skim milk, and along with that comes a, a stack of their favorite cookies to to dunk in that milk, we actually get a chance to connect, um, you know, and and talk for a minute. And then, and again, the other the other issue with boys is they don't always tend to be the best or the most communicative animals in the world. So uh, enjoying you know that that moment with my boys is cer- certainly something that I really enjoy. But I do have a specific cookie that I like to put in there. It's, it's different between uh, me and my boys, but I, I do find the Nutter Butter as a superior dunkable <laughs> cookie um, because <laughs> the, the milk really helps cut that, that peanut buttery taste. And then when you're all done, you're actually left with this, what I find delicious, you know, peanut butter flavored milk, uh, which is your treat at the end. Oh, my goodness, Steve Shepley. I haven't heard the term nutter butter in so many years. I forgot they even made them. My goodness, it's a, we can mention brands. It's a Nobisco brand peanut butter shaped cookie, peanut-shaped cookie with a peanut yes. butter filling. Introduced, do you know what year they introduced them first? Do you know? I, you know, I, my guess would be probably probably back, down, back in the peanut boom in the early 1900s would be my guess. 
Well, the cookie actually was introduced in 1969, introduced to the public. Very interesting. Anybody can look it up. Nutter, N-U-T-T-E-R, butter, B-U-T-T-E-R on Wikipedia. It's a sandwich cookie. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Thank you for the memories. I never dunked. I just like my Oreos straight out of the box by the handful with a cold glass of ice-cold milk, the 100% kind, no diet, no anything. That's back in the day <laughs> when I could afford, afford to drink full-fat milk, and it was wonderful and cold. Actually, my dad taught me to put a little bit of an ice cube in my milk sometimes just to make it extra crisp tasting. So thank you for the memory, Steve. We're having too good a time here. Sashin Bapat, where are you calling from? And what are you drinking, Sashin? Marvel us. Make us marvel. Go ahead. So I am uh, calling from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, from my home. And uh, in my cup is a ginger-infused steaming hot chai tea. Ah. That's my daily morning nirvana, so to speak. And tell me something. Do you make it from a tea bag? Do you make it from a little infuser with the, the tea leaves inside? Do you read the tea leaves? Tell me, tell me a little more about how you make it. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, make it myself every morning, and I uh, put fresh ginger in it, some cardamom, uh, Indian style, and tea leaves, and boil the water add some sugar to it, and then some uh, milk, and, and boil it till it gets the right color and the right consistency, and that's my drink. Sounds delicious, sounds refreshing, and since the three of you are new to Game Changers, I probably won't surprise you when I tell you I told this to Debbie kind of as a sidebar a moment ago. They don't let me near caffeine on radio show days, and a couple days a week it's two shows a day, so you can imagine, Bonnie, no caffeine today. So I have a cool, clear glass of cool, clear water, room temperature by now, with a bright pink straw. My fun is what color straw I put in it. When it's raining, I put in a bright yellow or orange or pink straw in hopes that the straw will will lead the world to bring sunshine here to the North Shore of Long Island in New York. And today, the weather doesn't need any help. It's beautiful out, blue skies clear, and the sun is shining, and I'm very, very grateful. So you know what? I'm grateful also for our three panelists. We have a lot of good energy here, great thought leadership. If you're just tuning in, this is the future of manufacturing with Game Changers Radio. We're speaking today with three experts in the field of IMNC. That's manufacturing. We're talking about innovations, all that cool stuff coming down the pike. It's great to say it's cool, but what is the value to manufacturers? How are they going to use these breakthrough innovations to benefit, to take advantage, to grow their revenue, lower their costs, optimize their assets? Come on, it's not just a question of saying it's cool. It's what is it doing for me now? We're talking 3D printing, machine learning, digital twins. We'll find out about twins later and blockchains and a lot more. I have to do a shout out to Lori Jaeger or Jaeger. Lori, you have to tell me later how to pronounce your last name. She is with SAP and helped put together this wonderful panel and we have some people from the Digitalist Magazine. My colleagues on the SAP Thought Leadership Marketing Team are tweeting from Digitalist MAG. Thank you and so glad to have you on board and we've got all kinds of people. Raj Bal uh, B-A-H-L is tweeting as well. Looks like he's a fan of yours, Steve Shepley. He's retweeting some quotes and the Digitalist is tweeting about everybody. So if you want to see the tweets and follow the live conversation hashtag SAPR A-D-I-O, and you'll also find the link to listen live if you want to pass it along to someone else. So we're going to
going to take a quick break, and we'll come right back. Debbie Krupitzer, a Cap Gemini, is going to help me start the roundtable in earnest. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We will be right back, I promise. Kevin, out. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The manufacturing world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly industry leaders address new trends, overcome new challenges, and take advantage of new technologies. The aerospace, chemicals, high-tech, and industrial sectors are at the forefront of transforming manufacturing operations to truly change the game. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how innovations are driving new challenges and trends across various manufacturing sectors. The Future of Manufacturing with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Listening to the future of manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com, and you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of manufacturing with Game Changers. And we're back and having a very serious but very happy conversation about innovations coming down the pike into a manufacturing IMC facility, maybe near you. We're speaking with Debbie Krupitzer at Capgemini, Steve Shepley at Deloitte, and Sashin Papat at SAP. Debbie has graciously agreed to start the roundtable with me. I'm looking at the notes she sent me before the show, and here's something provocative. Let's start with this topic, Debbie. We're talking about the connected factory. She says, contrary to what some manufacturers assume, building a smart factory does not require a multi-billion dollar capital investment. There's no need to build entirely new production facilities or install the latest machine. So let's take this a little further. Debbie, why don't you fill in the blanks for us and let's get this party started. Go ahead. Yeah, no problem. So I think there's an assumption whenever we, you know, speak to manufacturers and they get nervous, they're like, we we just don't have the money, we can't build a multi-billion dollar facility. They're thinking it's going to be like state-of-the-art innovation test lab where, you know, everybody comes in and it's a showcase. Now, you can do that. Those are beautiful plants to walk through and super fun to see. But what we tell our manufacturers is that you really don't have to do that. You've got old machines, 20, 30-year-old machines sometimes, right, that are doing the job. You don't need to replace those machines. What we can do is actually put sensors on those machines to extract data. Um, And what we're trying to do is pull out the value of what's going on in the plant, whether that's around the operational efficiency, if that's the machines are going down, there could be operator error. You know, you're really looking at the throughput of the factory. So are you at where you want to be? So is your downtime impacting your throughput? Are you guys just not producing at the level? Is the quality not there? You know, those are the key things that a plant is looking at. And always it's interesting because, you know, IT was never in the plant. So we sort of say it's the convergence of IT and OT. And OT is operational technology. Operational technology is is at the machine level. The machines have always captured data and they tell you what's going on at that machine. But what we're trying to figure out is what is going on, you know, above that. So how can we pull the data, you know, to get insights from 
from the machines to tell us how to predict if there's going to be a failure. Where is the downtime? So there's just so much going on. So it isn't really about the multi-billion dollar investment. It's coming in on a hypothesis around your factory. And then it's going in and inciting the data. Let's go look at the data that you've got. Let's extract the data that you have. And let's figure out what's going on. Let's see the areas that you can improve on. And I think people assume that it's a huge investment, but it really isn't. It's more looking at the data that you have then supplementing with Internet of Things, with sensors to get you additional data, and then making those changes. And I will tell you that 90% of the time when I go into factories, it's really a process issue. It's never a technology issue. There's some process issue that is, is, is you know, outdated or is just being done because it's always been done that way. So what we find is it really isn't around the technology. I mean, we love new technology. It's just really around the people and processes and what's going on. So those aren't easy changes. Let's be honest. That's not easy to do. Um, but those are things that we can work with. And and at the end of the day, you know, with anybody we're talking about in manufacturing, I, I put it very simply, we're here to make you money or save you money, right? So we want to use these technologies around a connected plant to get operational efficiency. How can we save money in the plant? You know, how can we make what things to to, to look at the operational efficiencies within within the organization and then make money. How do you produce more, right? How can we get the throughput? Um, how can we get production levels up? How can we start looking at, you know, maybe embedding IoT into the products to get more data back? That's the really fun part. But I think, as you guys pointed out, manufacturers are kind of show me, you know, show me, and then and then I'll do it. They don't want to be... You know, they, they don't want to be the leading group. They kind of want to be the fast followers. And I think the operational efficiencies in that connected plant is the best way to show up that you're leaving money on the table. Nobody wants to leave money on the table. Thank you, Debbie. Great insights. Uh, it, it seems so obvious, yet shiny and new. I quoted on one of our shows yesterday. I'm going to have to look up that quote. Uh, you have to get away from shiny and new. Sometimes it's sitting right there in front of you, and a, and a small adjustment will make a difference. Steve Shepley at Deloitte. Love to get your POV on what Debbie just shared with us. Go ahead, Steve. No, I think uh, no, I think in in general, I I, I have the same vision uh, around what what Debbie said. I think there's this this fantastic opportunity on that shop floor, but I I do think Debbie forgot to mention a very important point, right? Because when you walk on walk in on any shop floor, I absolutely agree that they are to some degree data rich and information poor, right? So by using the analysis to enrich that data and generate some type of insight and you know, maybe you need to use some new sensors or new technology or some type of IoT platform to do that. But believe it or not, those two things aren't enough. Because really what you need to get to on the factory floor is some type of action or decision that you couldn't do yesterday. And the only way that you do that is around how you deliver that information uh, to individuals. So, you know, we continue to talk about, you know, IoT being the answer. And I, I actually think it's just an ingredient of the answer. You need to think through what's that user experience and what type of visualization or mobile delivery of that information do I get into the hands of a worker who, you know, might, might not be used to, to getting information like that. So rather than, you know, turning the dial left, they turn the dial right. 
You know, it has to be something that generates a new action. And I think there's even more technologies that, that will really, you know, break in here. I mean, you're starting to see Apple move into the factory environment because they've got great mobile devices that are intuitive, simple to use, and, and have a great visual environment and kind of simplicity to how they run. But there's also augmented reality, and that's a, a new and very easy way to deliver an overlay of information, you know, to a worker who previously has never seen it before, you know, knowing the, the status of the compressor, how fast it's working, when it's going to fail, what's the output of the quality coming from that machine, kind of giving all that in an environment where now they can get to that action quicker. That's really the secret sauce at the end of this journey. And I think it can't be forgotten that there's not just connectivity and analysis, there's information delivery. Thank you very much. Steve Shepley, great addition to the topic. And Sashim Papat, we'd love to get your thoughts. Please join us. Sure. I'd like to just add one more data point to uh the, the uh, great insights that have, that have been presented already. I think the huge amounts of data that are gathered, like Debbie mentioned, on the shop floor, there is a huge value in it uh, in analyzing the root cause of what is happening. Uh, so certainly there are a lot of quality-related issues on any manufacturing floor, and people like to do root cause analysis and I had a customer uh, actually say we went from two hours of meetings to 15 minutes of uh, insight and quick action after we implemented the technologies that we are talking about because they were able to get to the root cause of what was causing the quality issues quickly. And so that's the value of it because we are talking about value to eliminate the quality errors quickly and effectively uh, with all the data that is available. Thank you, Sashin. Very interesting. Debbie, you started a great topic. We've had some terrific in, in, insights from your other panelists. Anything you want to say, Debbie, before we move on? Yeah, I think it's all valid points. And I, I think around the, you know, the, how the data gets sent or disseminated or to the to the plant uh, factory workers is so critical, right? User usability and user interface is, is absolutely critical, but you've got to have the right hypothesis of what the data is supposed to be showing you. So many times we get dashboards that are shown to beautiful dashboards, right? The most beautiful dashboards, but they aren't telling them anything. They're just telling mm-hmm. them that everything's good. Everything's green, and that's not really. So it's really got to be the data has to be, as, as we said, valuable. It has to provide insight. It has to be actionable. It has to, it has to sort of trigger a change. Thank you very much, Triggering a Change. And we're talking disruption, we're talking change, and we're talking hopefully very good changes. Stephen Shepley at Deloitte, I'm looking at your notes here, and let's see, a lot of good stuff here. Uh, here's something that uh, I have an appetite for your comment about a red herring, so let me read it here. You say, Breakthrough, breakthrough technologies are allowing new opportunities for the I, M, and C segment, but the technology itself is a red herring. I'm going to define that for our listeners around the world who may not know it. A red herring is something that misleads or distracts from a relevant or important issue. And Steve adds, real value creation will be defined by those that own the data or those that own the algorithm. I'm going to let you continue from here. Steve, please tell us more. Sure, sure. So first, and, and the reason why I believe the technology is a red herring, because we, we hear exciting things like 3D printing and machine learning, and, and these are simply 
tools that are in the box um, that folks can use. And the reality is, is that everyone is going to have access to those tools over time. And frankly, over time, that technology is going to become a commodity. Right. There's going to be you know, a whole bunch of different manufacturers or one killer manufacturer that brings these technologies to the table. Really, the place to own the secret sauce is around what you feed those tools and then what you instruct those tools to do. And let me talk about that for a second. Um, first, and, and again, this is from some of the studies we've done looking at what you know, new digital solutions look like. But when you look at where the PowerPoints are, first... Any digital solution is 100% reliant on its input data. So if you focus on owning that data, you're always going to be someone who kind of owns where the solution heads, who has access to it, who uses it, who gets either cost advantage or revenue advantage out of that equation. So data ownership is going to be a battlefield that I think we're just going to continue to see rise and rise and rise because it is really the, the controlling element of what these new digital ecosystems process the second piece is it's not just about that data. You know, when you use any of these tools and you knit them together, what you realize is there's some intellectual property created. And that intellectual property is typically in the algorithm, right? It's what you do with that data, how you process it in some very unique way. So someone on the shop floor or someone running that machine can do something different, act different, you know, you know make the, the, sell of, the sale of that machine more profitable. And that, that uniqueness and that ownership of the algorithm is really where the secret Secret sauce sets, and I and I think you can you can see that you know time and time in in, in other industries, right? That if you own that source data and you own the algorithm that connects that data in a meaningful way, those are your powerpoints. Um, so I think over time, it's come and where I find a lot of failure in the IM and C segment is I is I come in and and the companies are thinking, you know, hey, I need to go build my own platform. And my short answer to them is don't build the platform. You can buy platforms. You can rent platforms. There's every single way to get those nine ways from Sunday. What you need to focus on is where do you, where do you have power, right? What is the source data and the uniqueness of that that you can own? And then, of course, what's the algorithm you're going to write that uses that in a different way than anyone else in the sector to go get competitive advantage? Thank you very much. Heavy stuff. Very, very interesting. Who owns the data? Okay, let's get Sashin Bapat at SAP to chime in on this. Sashin, agree or disagree with Steve? No, I would totally agree with what Steve is saying. I would just like to add to the algorithm point that uh, artificial intelligence is actually going also beyond the algorithm paradigm. And to Steve's point, the data is, the new oil. This is a new quote I just heard from uh, an Indian industrialist, Ambani. Uh, he says, data mm-hmm. is the new oil. And uh, he's actually launching a brand new telecommunications company to really capture the data uh, generated by over a billion people in that marketplace. So coming back to the value of data, I think that artificial intelligence has the power to sort of self uh uh, detect these patterns that the data provides and and propose solutions to act on them. Uh, and to Steve's point, it's critical that that data be sort of in the ownership of the manufacturer of the original equipment and their customers. So I think there is an opportunity for uh, OEMs, IMNC companies, to be constantly connected with their customers today with this whole IoT concept by providing them that network and uh, constant connection. 
Thank you, Sashin. And by the way, I looked up data is the new oil, and there's some dispute over who said it originally, but some sources say it was Clive Humby. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just going to put that down in my quote, and thank you very much. Let's circle around the table to Debbie Krupitzer at Capgemini. Debbie, a lot of interesting thoughts going around the table. What's your POV, please? Yeah, I I, I agree and I disagree. And I'm going to say, like, I, I think Good. that data can be the new oil, but I think that what's going on is we as consultants are telling our clients that their data is valuable, and then they hoard the data, and they don't know what pieces of it are valuable. So they sort of think everything is valuable, and not everything is valuable when it comes to the data. It's, it, there are pieces, algorithms, absolutely correct, but what I'm more interested in is a share model of how we can then share the data across industries. Our problems are, all, are pretty much the same. You know, what, what are we looking at in terms of the challenges? 90% of the challenges are the same. Is there more of a share model where we can share the learning, share the data, share the algorithms? I think IP is interesting. I think it's going to be outdated in 10 years. I, th- I don't think it's going to be where, um, where people think it's going to be. I think the share model is going to be a much more interesting play for organizations. So how do you put this data where you can then share the values, the learnings, and maybe there's some monetization of that around the exchange. But I think hoarding the data and just keeping it for your own sort of like, well, we're going to use this and leverage it as our own IP is kind of an old-fashioned way to look at it. And I'd like to look at new models of how we go forward. Thank you very much. Steve Shepley, I'm going to circle around to you. Thoughts? Yeah, I guess first I, I love such and I love the quote, data is the new oil is make, making me think of, you know, sugar is the new tobacco. But because uh, I, I absolutely <laughs> agree with that. And, and certainly when, when I talk about the power of the algorithm and you say artificial intelligence kind of becomes this living, breathing, you know, equation that can look in data and give you insights that you don't have. I, I, I do agree with that, but I think the real secret sauce in the algorithm is this term I use called an ensemble modeling, because it's not just artificial intelligence that you get value of. It's how do you take the output of an artificial intelligence, feed it into a predictive model that can give a directed action to, you know, someone on the shop floor or someone operating that machine. And those are really typically three separate models that in an ensemble fashion you knit together. And that's really where you start to create, I call it that, that IP or that uniqueness around how you build the algorithm. Uh, you know, back, back to Debbie's point, I, I, I probably fundamentally and absolutely disagree that the share model is where this thing is headed. I mean, besides sharing, not really being an, an, an intrinsic human behavior, um, you know, if you look at industry and industry over time, I mean, where companies that make highly engineered equipment, you know, all the money is in the parts and the data, right? And, the, and again, I don't think it's a hoard mentality. You certainly need to collect the right amount of data, but you've got to find ways to uniquely monetize that data because if you continue to kind of share and give that data to everyone else, your ability to get a competitive advantage is going to be worn down very quickly. And I think, I think we've learned that lesson from a lot of the digital natives that exist today. You know, a company, you know, like Amazon, you know, believe it or not, they sell lots of products, but really their goldmine is the information they collect on you. And their ability to collect Mm -hmm. and hoard that information and then sell portions of it back to other companies or use it to optimize its portfolio is why we're watching that company literally disrupt brick-and-mortar enterprises that have been around for decades. So hidden underneath the entire guise of an easier way to shop is actually just a data-based business model that they've been collecting. So, again, I think the share model is going to continue to be, you know, know, heavily, heavily contested over time. 
Debbie, you want a rebuttal time? I can give you a minute. Go ahead, yeah, dear. I, I think I think time will tell, right? I think uh, I think that organizations believe that they've got proprietary information, and they, and they do around some parts. I think that it is the how they monetize and sell it is the challenge that they've got, and nobody's able to do it that well. So my sort of thought, and I don't disagree. I think that that is how organizations think, but. I think the share model, there is an interesting way of how we're sharing the data to get, it's sort of like in the medical industry, right? So where they share information around research to get, to come to a better good, a better understanding. And I wonder in 10 years if that's not where we're going to be. Not to say that companies don't want to make money. You know, they're not going to be, be sharing things because they're going to be like, this is my value add. It'll just be an interesting, it's going to be interesting in 10 years to see where it goes. Thank you very much. I want to use the next four and a half minutes. Sashin, you're in the spotlight here. You're in the hot seat. I'm going to put a little pressure on you. I want to cover some of these advanced technologies, these innovations coming, knocking on the door of IMC manufacturing facilities and saying, use me, use me. And the managers are saying, why, why, why should we? What's the value? Okay, sorry about that. So I want to cover a couple of in your list here. You have some great ideas here in your list, great text. And Sashin, I'm going to ask you to define these for us in case our listeners are not familiar. So let's just have a couple of sentences. I'm just going to go through a lightning rod list here with you. Number one, digital twins will become as expected as operator manuals are today. Sashin, talk to me. Digital twins, what's the value? What's the meaning for IMNC? And then I'm going to get two more texts out of you. So go ahead, Sashin. Absolutely. So I'll make it brief since you're asking me to do multiple things. Digital twin is really (coughs) a digital copy, if you will, a live breathing a uh, copy of an equipment that resides uh, in the cyberspace. So you have a machine out there operating on a shop floor, for example, or in an oil field, and you have its exact model uh, of how it was built, how it is repaired to date, uh, with all the history, with all the sensor data that Debbie was uh, earlier alluding to, uh, and the sensors basically providing information on its current status, on the conditions that it is operating in, for example, that can then be leveraged to monitor, uh, to uh, preventatively maintain, and to predictively maintain that equipment. Thank you. Let's go to the second one. Blockchain technology will be a key in establishing trust in global supply chains. This is a voice I try not to use on the radio. Sashin, blockchain technology and manufacturing, tell me, what's the value? Sure. So blockchain technology, uh, let's define it. It's coming from... uh, the Bitcoin, uh, we all know it, at least from the Bitcoin experiment, the currency uh, that everybody is talking about and was talking about. It's Essentially, it is a distributed ledger technology. It's, it's a way to do security around transactions at scale. So instead of storing the data all on one computer, if you will, it is distributed across multiple participants in that transaction and it is highly encrypted, so nobody can sort of hack into it and get in the headlines and destroy a company or its uh, uh, share value. Thank you very much. Let's tackle two more quickly. One is robots and manufacturing. How present and accounted for are they, and will you have to give them vacation days? Sashin. (laughs) Yeah, maybe they'll get smart enough to form unions, so that would be very interesting to see. Uh, But... uh, I think robots are becoming uh, much more versatile. Uh, 
from they're going from just a single purpose single uh, use robot that we can think about uh, on our automotive shop floor that just does nothing else but welding of a certain joint to more of thinking devices so uh, think of think of some uh, almost like a human looking robot that can do uh, pick and place um, exercise or pick and place operation but not only for one particular object but any object you give it so think of a uh, a workshop table after a day's work with 25 mm-hmm. different tools lying on it and the robot smart enough to look at each and every tool each and every gadget and pick it up with the right strength and at the right point and place it back on the on the cart or on the tool board thank you so very much for robotics technology is going. <clears throat> Thank you, Sashin. Sorry, sorry to have to rush through this, but I wanted to make sure we got a little bit of definition and level setting. We have so much more to talk about. We are out of time. Debbie Krupitzer at Capgemini, I can give you 60 seconds for your predictions. Let's say we would meet on January 1st, 2020. I know you'll all be doing something from the night before partying, but let's just pretend <laughs> we all get together and I say, hey, Debbie, hey, Steve, hey, Sashin. You know, we met on March 30th, 2017, back in the day, talking about manufacturing innovations and the value of breakthroughs. What would change about that conversation? What do you predict? Debbie Krupitzer, 60 seconds predictions, go. I think more automation. I think we're going to see the absorption of automation with robotics. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of people uh, completely, but I think we're going to see more um, cultural sort of awareness and, and absorption of the fact that robotics and automation is a good thing. Um, I think we'll always have, like I said, the people that are going to be engaged in sort of controlling it. My idea is that you've got one guy in the plant that's controlling the entire plant. I think we're just going to see a lot more, um, less resistance on automation on the factory floor. I think we're going to see a lot more value that's being driven and that the manufacturers are going to say, hey, this does work. We know that there's value in this and we're seeing, um, we're seeing the money. We're seeing the money that we're saving and that makes us happy and we're willing to invest in it. Thank you very much. Happy and invest in are two key words I picked up very quickly there. Thank you, Debbie. Steve Shepley at Deloitte, I can give you the same 60 seconds. What do you see in the crystal ball? You know, I, I think when we run into our future selves, I, I actually think we're going to be at a much different point. Uh, the analog that I draw is very similar to the e-business boom that we all kind of remember, you know, maybe in the, the mid to late 1990s where everyone was converting themselves into an e-business. We don't talk mm-hmm. about that anymore because that's just simply how businesses run. I think we're going to hit a point where all of these topics and technologies become so ingrained and so much in the fabric that, you know, we'll be on to, to the next thing. So I think it's going to be absolutely table stakes. And whether that's by 2020 or 2025, you know, you know, you know only time will tell. And I think we're going to be focused, you know, certainly, certainly on that next tranche. I, I will say the biggest difference we're going to see is that almost any company that historically has been focused on producing parts or highly engineered pieces of equipment is going to have a, a, a software division attached to it. I think every hard part company is slowly going to become much more like a software company. It's going to, and that's going to be how they're going to increase margins because, frankly, software is more profitable than, than hardware is almost all the time. And all of that software is going to be making their products more sticky, more profitable, uh, more easy for the, the buyers uh, to use when they install them on their plant floors. So I think, I think we're going to see just a dramatic shift in the composition of companies, what companies do, and, and, and certainly how companies create value. 
Thank you very much, Sashin. I saved, ooh, 60 seconds for you. That's it. What do you want to say? Predict. Thank you. So I'll pick up where uh, Steve just left off, which is how the value is created. Um, I think companies will further specialize and really focus on their core competency. More and more companies will just specialize on customer intimacy and product development, and others will specialize on how to make those products cheaper, faster, better. Uh, that's where I think all these technologies that we're talking about will help us go to in 20 years. Thank you very much. 20 years, 2020, it's all the same to me. I'll be drinking water that night probably anyway. Debbie Krupitzer at Capgemini, Steve Shepley at Deloitte, Sashin Papad at SAP. I can't thank you enough. I promised you when I met you on our prep call, I would tell you how marvelous you were, how wonderful you were, how grateful I am. Well, it was not an empty promise. It's true. You were all terrific. Great insights. Love the energy and love the passion about the topic. So I hope you'll all come back and join me again. And let's see, this afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern, a new edition of Utilities of the Future with Game Changers. I think we're talking about blockchain today. Oh my, want to talk about that at some point in the future. Lori Yeager, thank you so much for putting this. Lori worked so hard to get everything together for today. Lori, turned out beautifully. And a shout out to David Parrish, who's somewhere on vacation. Dave, give Lori a thank you and shake her hand and buy her a good box of chocolates. She really worked hard on this one. Debbie Krupitzer, Steve Shepley, Sashim Papat, my gratitude to you and Kevin and the Business Channel team. We appreciate Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting? Be like Debbie. Be like Steve. Be like Sashin. Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to the Future of Manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Thursdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.